there's the science of meditation, but then there's also the art of the practice. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate that there is an art to it. Just like there's an art to ballet and there's an art to archery and there's an art to salsa dancing and any other kind of art form. Welcome to Radically Loved Radio. I am your host, Rosie Acosta, yoga teacher and teacher trainer, mindfulness coach, speaker, and creative writer. I am also the founder of radicallyloved.com, a website where you can go for more information about yoga, mindfulness, meditation, and lifestyle advice. On this podcast, we talk to people within our health and wellness community that are creating content through the ritualistic practice of yoga, meditation, or overall mindful living. We hope to create value in your life so that you can achieve your highest potential and live a radically loved life. To stay in touch with us, just follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Rosie Acosta and on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie. You can sign up for our newsletter on radicallyloved.com to stay up to date on future workshops, retreats, and latest podcasts. I hope that Radically Loved Radio leaves you feeling inspired to create something powerful. My teacher, Yoga Rupa Rodstreicher, says, if you powerfully believe in the value you have to offer the world, your love and passion for it will be an unstoppable force. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic, the coffee that gets you fired up. Aside from supporting energy, stamina, and athletic performance, cordyceps have been studied for their strong antioxidant properties. I have been so obsessed with this coffee for the last year. I've been drinking it and I've been traveling with it. And in case coffee doesn't pump you up enough, how about coffee paired with one of the most energy supporting mushrooms on the planet, cordyceps. So coffee is so energizing because it stimulates the central nervous system and the adrenal glands. But combining this with a more balanced cellular energy to support uh, our immune system and our health function, this mushroom can result in a balanced stimulation while using only half of the amount of caffeine normally found in a coffee, which is awesome. <laughs> they also have an incredible matcha mix that is my absolutely new favorite, and they want to give our listeners a gift. So for those of you who are curious and want to try the mushroom coffee that doesn't taste like mushrooms, go to foursigmatic.com forward slash radically loved. So that's foursigmatic.com forward slash R-A-D-I-C-A-L-L-Y-L-O-V-E-D for 15% off of all of their products. Thanks for listening. Light Watkins is a Santa Monica-based Vedic meditation teacher. He is an instructor for Mind Body Green and is also a TEDx speaker. He's the author of The Inner Gym and Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. He grew up in Montgomery, Alabama and never knew that his journey was going to lead him to where it did. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. Light and I were able to really dig deep to all of the different myths that surround meditation, how he got started, how his process has been and different ways that we can all really incorporate this incredible practice into our lives. As you all know, this is one of my favorite topics. So uh, I try to keep it as concise as I could, (laughs) but we had a, a great time and I can't wait to hear what you guys thought of this episode. 
Here's Light Watkins. <laughs> I always find it so like interesting for authors that are especially going on the circuit interview mm -hmm. doing interviews and when they have a book and yeah. you have this sort of packaged key point powerpoint that you want to present because you want to obviously talk to people about your work that you've done and you know what what's in the book etc mm -hmm. but um i'm always curious like what really like do you ever get tired of like talking about the same thing <laughs> You know, it's, it's I, I don't actually, because the thing that I'm talking about, I, I feel like it's so relevant and there's just not enough people who are aware of this. So as long as I have an attentive ear and a curious audience, I'm happy to talk about it because it's, it's something that I think can help people and give real value to people like right now. And I think, and that's what I've been seeing with the book. Um, is that people who get it, they just think, oh, this is just another, probably just going to be another meditation book. Yeah. I know it says how to succeed without really trying, but is it, you know, and they find out that it's actually that, and they get blown away by, I can't believe he just gave all this away. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because people have been, I've been teaching people this stuff for a very long time, and, you know, it's, it, it hasn't been cheap for a lot of people. And so it's, it's, I think it's, something that needs to be out there a little bit more just to even help the casual meditator vet different offerings so they can know is this for me or not or is this person speaking in a way that's going to that i'm going to connect with um, because most people who are in this space don't really have that level of comprehensive understanding because there's no certification for being a meditation teacher you could wake up tomorrow and decide okay Podcasting was nice. Now I'm a meditation teacher. <laughs> you know, any, and that's that. That's both good and bad. Anybody can call themselves a meditation teacher because I think that <clears throat> every every experience uh, serves as a point of reference for any person who's who's having the experience. Um, so let's say you have a bunch of shitty meditation experiences, yeah. like I did in my first few years. It's going to help you appreciate the powerful stuff when you when you experience it later on. So there's value to shitty meditation experiences. Yeah. Oh, tell us about the shitty ones. <laughs> well, my, my big thing with you is like how you've been able to create something to make it so accessible for people and make it easy for people to even attempt. Like, I feel like you really have done a great job at demystifying uh, meditation as, as this like, oh, I can't do it. I'm not good at it. Right, you talk about it all the time. I mean, that's that's, and it's true. And most people, even people listening to this now, um, maybe that have had bad experience. Like, what does a bad experience look like? Yeah, a bad experience in meditation. And again, um, just just to give a little context to what we're talking about for the listener, I have been in the meditation space for about twenty years. My first few years, I was basically trying different things, knocking my head against the wall. And, you know, the common sort of uh, notion around meditation is that it's supposed to be this very rigid, austere, hard thing. You have to discipline your mind and body to be able to sit long enough to get value from it. And if you're a very good meditator, eventually you'll break through and you'll experience samadhi, nirvana, you know, bliss consciousness. And that just wasn't my experience. I, I, I've sat and sat and tried and... You know, and my my whole 
I, I didn't know if it was my imagination or what, but my whole experience was just me staring behind my eyelids, waiting for something to happen. And you get the woo-woo instructions about chakras and sit up straighter, bring your fingers together. No one really gave any explanation why that was important, aside from, again, you know, your energy is flowing through your body. It's like, how do you, how do you gauge that? How do, how do I know if, if it stops, if the energy has stopped flowing? How do I know if my chakras are not in alignment? And, uh, and it wasn't until I moved to Los Angeles about 16 years ago, I met my, my t teacher, who was a transcendental meditation teacher. I didn't know that. I didn't know what that meant. I just, all I knew is that when he opened his mouth and started talking, every, everything made sense. He was able to speak to the nuances and the subtleties of meditation. He told me to get off the floor, sit on the couch, get comfortable, sit in that position, and that's how you want to meditate. And, uh, and he gave me a mantra, and he, sh he showed me how to, how to elicit what's called the relaxation response, which, is, which, is, which was the experience that I had been looking for the entire time. I just didn't know. I didn't have language for it. So when I was able to tap into it, which only took a couple of days, because now I was, my whole approach had changed, um, it was like discovering the ocean, and you never knew it existed. <laughs> and it was right in your backyard. <laughs> so it was a pretty profound and prolific experience. It changed everything. I knew instantly that I wanted to become a meditation teacher because I wanted to show other people how to have the experience because I knew that there was nothing special about me. I just, I just got some instructions. It's very counterintuitive. You would never stumble upon it on your own. And I've, I've taught thousands of people since my teacher trained me to become a teacher a few years after that. And I still haven't met anyone who knew what I was going to show them before we met. And, uh, and so I extracted some of those mechanics and principles um, from my, my whole experience with uh, teaching people. And I put it in this, in this book to help other people. Because the thing is, what I do now is very analog when I meet people. It's not scalable. You literally have to be there and you have to be, teach them kind of in person. But the principles are consistent no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what your education level is or your experience level with uh, meditation. If you follow these instructions, it will work. And if you don't follow the instructions, it won't work. It's that simple. And, uh, and I get a lot of flack from you know, some sects of meditation saying that I'm, I'm putting this forth as the right way to meditate and... And, uh, and I'm, not, it's not, I'm not saying this is the right way or the only way to meditate. What I'm suggesting is that if you are like me and you were having a very challenging time with meditation, you were struggling to feel anything, then this is the approach that you want to try because I think you'll find it very easy and enjoyable. And if you already enjoy your meditation, no matter what you're doing, I don't care what it is, you could be doing the boa constrictor meditation where the, you let the snake out and they come and wrap around you and oh that's <laughs> and, and start suffocating you, but you enjoy it because that's your thing. This is not the book for you because <laughs> it's not going to work with whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah, whatever that is. If that is you, please contact us. I'd like to interview you for this podcast. <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. I also find it, interesting how people in this community always find it imperative to create uh, this proprietary 
energy over something that should just be part of our everyday mm -hmm. practice. Um, you know, the one thing that I really love, uh, you talk about it, and I, I think you posted, uh, you posted on, on Instagram, I think, how you sit for meditation and now it's like what it looks like now and it's just you in a comfortable. And I, I just, I actually talked about that um, with my students up in Portland because I, I thought that that was so, to me that was profound because it was most of the time we're taught to sit, you have to sit upright and you have to do things in and the mudra and you have to make sure that your spine is, and I, I get all of that is, is good and some people maybe really need to have that sort of, you know, vertical alignment. But I find that in order to tap into a place to tune into the relaxation response, it's imperative that you're comfortable. Yeah, and we, you know, also you can't deny the science. I mean, there's the first people to research modern meditation, meaning Western approaches to meditation. And, the, and most of the research that we see now is based on that research. And they were testing the relaxation response with people sitting with their back supported. I mean, that's where we get the name, the relaxation response, which is a unique state of consciousness compared to the waking, sleeping, and dreaming state. So, and the guy that was doing all that research wasn't a meditator. He wasn't someone who learned meditation. Um, he, was, he wanted to remain unbiased and objective, and he tested it hundreds of times with various meditators and he kept seeing the same thing, and it's really fascinating research. He actually published a book. His name is Herbert Benson. I talk about him in my book, but he published a book called The Relaxation Response, which went on to sell like 4 million copies in the 1970s because it was such a profound discovery that you could have this experience without focusing, without sitting up straight, without the mudra. And, um, and so there's... In my opinion, there's, there's no point in sitting in that way if it's not, there's, if there's no verified value to it, like what's just to make your yoga teacher happy because <laughs> cause they heard it from somewhere else and they don't fully even understand it themselves. I mean, if you start asking people these questions, why do we do this, why do we do that, you'll find that most, most of the people who are, who are perpetuating these sort of myths of meditation don't really know what they're they don't really have good answers other than because that's what you should do because that's what you know my teacher said you should do type of a thing right so you want someone who can break it down for you from every angle biochemical physiological spiritual emotional mental you know all of those things can be explained there's nothing arbitrary about meditation yeah do you think it's important to meditate to learn to meditate with a teacher Absolutely. It's, if you have access to a good teacher who knows these nuances of the practice, then I would say don't even hesitate um, to go and study with them because it's going to be a completely different experience. And even, even myself, the only reason I'm able to write a book like this is because I had a teacher. So no one who's mastered meditation learned it from a book or from an app or from an online video, a YouTube video. They learn it from a teacher. And not everybody's interested in mastery level meditation, right? Um, <clears throat> but I think another thing teachers provide that is kind of scarce out there these days is, is uh, accountability. And, and, and that includes having someone to 
bounce off your experiences and get verified or validated to know that you're doing it in the way that's most efficient. Just like anything else, you know. Um, there's the science, the science of meditation, but then there's also the art of the practice. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate that there is an art to it. Just like there's an art to ballet and there's an art to archery and there's an art to salsa dancing and any other kind of art form, if you don't have someone who can kind of guide you through it and help you learn the fundamentals, which you may not know what those are and what order to practice them in, in order to have the best results in the quickest amount of time, then you end up just spending a lot of time forming bad habits or doing things that may be counterproductive to what your ultimate goal goal may be. And so um, that's, that's one of the things that I still get a lot of joy out of in teaching people. Because I still teach people one-on-one, -on -one, even people who've read my book, and they still come in and they're still amazed by how much more um, there is to, to, to learn when you're learning with someone. Because I could literally look at someone meditating and I can tell exactly what they're experiencing inside just by looking at them. Because it's not that, again, if you know what you're looking at, right. looking for, yeah. it's not that hard. Yeah. And then once they come out, and I, I won't say anything. I'll just ask what their experience was and they'll tell me and it's never surprising. And, I can, and they say, oh, this thing happened. I can tell them why it happened. And if they were sitting in such a way or doing something during the practice that I know was blocking them from having another type of experience, I can kind of pinpoint exactly what that is. So yeah. that's one of the things that I do when I'm teaching people. I'm looking around the room and I'm just looking at everybody, how they're sitting, how they're breathing, you know, what their body is doing during the meditation. And then I can kind of deduce what the refinements would be for every single person in the room. And so after doing that, sitting with them for three or four days, then they become an even uh, more masterful practitioner. Yeah. That's, wow, you just like can Jedi everybody in the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's not, it's not like I have some special spiritual power. It's just mechanical. You know, I've just done it so many times and yeah. I've taught so many people. Just like with ballet. You could, if I was a ballet instructor, I could just look around and tell exactly where everybody was in their experience level. Or yoga, the Or same they were thing. hurting themselves, exactly. Yeah. Yoga. You can look at the first forward fold of the class, you know exactly where everybody is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> totally. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like you're, you speak to the efficacy of having a discipline. I mean, mm -hmm. that's really what it is. And I think that, especially in today's age, we forget about the process because everything's so instant now. You can get an app and be totally relaxed, calm instantly. You know, like all these, all these quick, you can swipe and have somebody at your doorstep in like 10 minutes, you know, like yeah. all of these things, everything's so instant. We've, we've forgotten what it's like to actually have to wait or work through something mm -hmm. or, or create a discipline like ballet or mm -hmm. like dancing or learning another language. Mm -hmm. It's literally an exercise in uh, your own will and discipline and, and level of commitment, I think. I, and I think the reason why we are so sort of, we have such high expectations for meditation is because unlike ballet or some other art, where you have to actually get on your feet and move around, you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm just sitting here. Why is it so difficult? You know, I'm just sitting here with my eyes closed. Why is it so difficult? 
And it's true, you are just sitting there with your eyes closed. But we're taking an indoctrination of how to, uh, how to engage in other activities and we're adopting those ways into our meditation practice, which can be, again, counterproductive. And it requires a completely different skill set in dealing with the mind. And then, because most people, again, don't have like instruction, they are trying to analyze the experience while they're in the experience. And that's, that's just like, nothing is happening when you're doing that. Mm -hmm. So people have to get out of that mode of trying to analyze it. It's like analyzing your dance while you're dancing. You're gonna always be a clunky dancer. You have to, at some point, let go. And that's one of the main components to meditation is to, at some point, let go. And uh, when you do that, you're, you're always amazed by how much more profound the experience can be. Uh, but you've got to feel safe in order to do that. Yeah. And most people don't feel safe when they're swimming or sinking in their own mind. And, uh, and that's because they just don't know. There's too much uncertainty. There's too many unknown variables with the mind. And if no one can explain it to you well, then it, you always feel kind of, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? On edge, on edge, on edge. And then you mistakenly conclude that you can't meditate or it's not for you. And that's just not the case at all. Oh, that's so, so true. And so profound in many ways because, I mean, that's so metaphorical to how just we live our lives most of the time. Yeah. So you get to live your life in this bubble, like me. Mm -hmm. We get to live and work in a space where we get to do something that we love for mm -hmm. a living. Um, what do you say to people, and I'm sure, and you get to work with these people all the time, people that are like, well, I live in a really stressful environment and I have a really stressful job and I really love that you're saying all of these things you know, and, and I know what the science is and what the data is. I really want to connect. I really want to be able to have this peace in my life. But I just, I'm having a, a difficult time being able to connect because that's just not my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. What do you say to that person? Honestly, I wouldn't say anything to them. <laughs> I, just, I would just wish them well and tell them to keep doing what they're doing. <laughs> Because the quickest way to get someone to a meditation practice is to let them hit rock bottom emotionally <laughs> and spiritually. <laughs> There's nothing I can say that's going to... If they're convinced that they don't have time and all that and all these excuses, then, that's, yeah. then they have to go ahead and, follow, and, and um, see that to the, to the to end. To the end, yeah. And then, and then they'll be on a plane to Bali or India or somewhere. They'll do yeah. whatever they have to do because there's really just no other good solutions that are sustainable, that provide what I call clean energy, clean clarity. You know, there's substances that can give you clarity and energy, but it comes with a cost. And, um, and there's nothing like meditation in that sense. That's why we're still talking about it 6,000 6, years later. It's because it's, it's the one thing that everybody wishes they could do. You know, it's not like vegetarianism where people have strong opinions. Oh, uh, you know, it's not for everybody and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, blah, blah, blah. Everybody agrees meditation would be a great thing if I could, if I could do it. They, everyone envisions their lives being amazing or more amazing if, if, they, if only they could sit down and meditate. Um, and I think 
you know, we, we are really quick to let ourselves off the hook by concluding that it's not for me or I have a monkey mind. Um, because then we don't feel bad about indulging in the other uh, ways of coping. Because everybody has, there's always, there's always some, you, you, everyone needs an outlet for the pressure and the stress and the demands of everyday life. We all need it. We all need some outlet. And if you look closely, you'll see it in everybody's life. You know, somebody may have a sugar addiction, that's their outlet which has a string of side effects that ultimately cascades into poor health and you know gaining weight and things. Somebody else may be a workout addict and they you know work out a little bit too much mm-hmm. <laughs> or too aggressively <laughs> yeah. and they end up injuring themselves at some point, wearing their bodies out. Somebody else maybe have a porn addiction, you know, so they're stealing themselves away in the dark of the night and getting on that or all day long and it's or affecting long, their work. Yeah. Somebody else may have a fried food addiction. Somebody else may, you know, not be able to shut up and they just talk everybody's ear off because that's how they have to process things. All these little things, all these little quirks, and we all have something, right? And it's not to say meditation is going to make those things go away overnight, but it does provide the body with a very useful outlet for the stress. And what you find is that your ability to sort of rise above your own addictive behaviors or at least create space in between you unconsciously going into them and you being able to like look at it and say, oh wow, I've got all these areas to clean up in my life. It makes it a lot easier to do that. And, um, and if you don't do anything like meditation, then it just keeps perpetuating and, and hardwiring and it just makes it harder to get out of it. And so, you know, we don't want to find ourselves letting, our, letting ourselves off the hook. Um, and that's, that's one of the reasons why I go out of my way to make this accessible to people because I don't want them thinking meditation is some practice that only a certain group of people can do, you know, in the wellness industry and I've got to have money and I've got to be in the organic section of the grocery store and, you know, I want burger flippers, I want truck drivers, people who are operating in the underbelly of society, you know, paper boys, drug dealers, I want everybody to to know that this information is accessible and they can start using it today. And, that, and that's why, even though I know it's a better experience to learn from a teacher, you can still benefit from learning in a book compared to all the stuff that's like on YouTube and you know, things like that that people tend to go to. I find that you know, I have friends who have created meditation apps. I think apps are the worst way to learn how to meditate. It's a great way to track your meditation. If you're doing it consistently, it'll show you your progress over the course of however many months you've been meditating. But most of the apps are guided experiences. There's a time and place for guided meditation, right? But I think as a foundational practice, you want a stillness, a silent practice that you can do on your own without needing someone to prompt you and have you visualize Mm -hmm. things and take you on this kind of elaborate journey through your surface mind. You want to go beyond the surface mind into a more settled state. And that's where you're going to find, again, the relaxation response. The relaxation response doesn't happen at the surface mind. It happens beyond the surface mind. So at some point, you have to graduate from the guided experiences and into a more silent experience. Not meaning you don't have thoughts, but it means that you're not, you don't need prompts in order to meditate. 
and um, it's where you'll find the most liberation from the practice. So, yeah, I, I really like what you said about um, everything. I think that making it accessible to all to everyone is uh, is key. It's funny you're talking about that, and I, I wrote this article uh, like two years ago for Mantra Magazine about um, how meditation is for rich people, mm-hmm. and it was something that my dad told me because you know, he was having a really stressful time and, um, I was, you know, trying to help him and, and, you know, kind of guide him into like making different choices. And, you know, he is retired. He lives with two roommates and he lives in a very, you know, kind of chaotic environment. Um, and he's just like, was not really receptive to the fact that meditation would do anything to help him. Right, because he's like, "Oh, this is a luxury that I can't, I can't afford," and I'm like, "You can't afford to sit for five minutes and be quiet." <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I just, uh, what gets me is the I don't have time to meditate. Mm-hmm. Well, so what people mean when they say that, and I, I think it's sincere. They mean they don't have time to struggle through meditation. If meditation felt great, everybody would make time for it happily, just like we make time for our cravings and addictions. You know, and if anything, we have to stop ourselves from doing that. You know, people are literally today spending, you know, six hours on porn or watching a screen and scrolling through social media, not realizing how addicted they are, thinking to themselves, I could stop anytime I wanted to, but you don't. (laughs) You keep doing it over and over and over. It's the first thing you do when you wake up, it's the last thing you do before you go to bed. You know, you'll sit in your car before you go into work and just scroll through stuff, that's, that's addictive behavior. Yeah. And it's, it's something that's it's helping them cope with you know, reality. And if, if we can get meditation in that category of something they crave, uh, which was the idea behind the book, is to help people understand it well enough so that they can start to enjoy it enough so that they can start to crave it enough, then it becomes an easy choice, easy way to spend time. Yeah. What do you think about these new uh, sort of, they're not new, uh, substances that help people meditate, like these uh, ayahuasca experiences or people doing um, um, ecstasy or like them having these, I don't know if you've heard, but they have like these rituals and then they do like group meditation and that's how they're able to have their meditation practice. What's mm-hmm. your feeling about that? I wrote an article not that long ago about why this meditation teacher will, will has never done ayahuasca or something like that. And I, so I've never done it before. I've never done plant medicine ceremonies or journeys Um I just don't really feel called to do it. I don't have a problem with people doing it. I think it's better than not doing anything. If that's you know, something that feels charming to you um, to find answers. And so I can't really speak intelligently about the experience itself. And, but I can talk about why I don't feel called to do it. And it's because I feel like I get so much from my daily meditation practice that you know, it's kind of like if you have, you, you, I'm an iPhone user, I know about Samsung, I know about the Google Pixel phone, they look 
nice and I'm sure they do amazing things, but I'm really satisfied with my iPhone. <laughs> I don't need to go in the Samsung store. I don't need to talk to the rep. I don't need to have the experience um, <laughs> to compare it to what I'm already experiencing at all. And I think it's kind of like that, you know? If you're able to get to that state on a regular basis in your living room, I don't, you know, I don't need to go dress in white and go sit around with a bunch of you know, people who probably don't have any daily practice who are trying to get to some place overnight and, you know, shortcut it. I, I think it is a bit of a shortcut. Mm, and, yeah. and I think, you know, as you were saying earlier, having a gradual buildup is really what is more sustainable than the shortcut to the realization or the epiphany. Yeah. Because, because what happens is if you haven't really, well, first of all, you know, we have to look at, okay, where do these things, where do they originate from, right? They're from some sort of quote-unquote indigenous population of people living very much with the land, you know, with the, in the earth. They weren't eating pizza. They weren't drinking beer. They weren't, you know, watching Instagram 10 hours a day. They weren't driving around in cars. And so this is very much what we are doing. Mm -hmm. So now we're adopting something that was useful for that very natural, you know, integrated lifestyle with, with the earth. We're trying to adopt it into our sort of high uh, tech, modern lifestyle. So you have to wonder, is it still going to translate in the same way that it was originally meant to translate? And then number two, if you haven't really changed your lifestyle, I mean, they say don't drink and all that for two weeks beforehand, but that doesn't mean you're still not addicted to drinking or whatever your substances are. If you haven't really changed your lifestyle, then how stable are those epiphanies going to be in your life? It's the same phenomenon that happens with you know going to a landmark course or an MITT course or a Tony Robbins seminar. They're all wonderful seminars, they give you great information, but most of the people that go there end up reverting back to the old ways before the seminar. And that's because we don't appreciate how much we're hardwired to whatever lifestyle we're in because we haven't been making those incremental changes from within, right? Yeah. It's kind of like uh, trying to run you know, the best, most recent Adobe software on an old IBM ThinkPad computer, right? From 1997. It's it doesn't it's not going to run in the way that it's designed to run. <laughs> it's just going to keep freezing. And we think it's something wrong with us, but really it's something we haven't upgraded the nervous system yet. And that's what meditation does really beautifully. It's it allows the nervous system to receive an upgrade so that it can run all that software. So a lot of people that I um, no, who have experienced meditation seem to have very stable experiences with ayahuasca and those other plant medicines because they've been practicing it for a long time. And I would say, if you're going to do it, then try to do it in combination with a daily inner stillness practice to help it to help help your help you stabilize it a lot more. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm gonna. I agree with you. Uh, I've I've never had the experience either, and I've never been called to go explore an Android or a different <laughs> other type of phone either. So um, it just doesn't, 
it just doesn't call to me, but, but I know people that have done it and have mm-hmm. had experiences, but I, I will go back to exactly what you said, how it's what you're doing every day. That's going to create a more sustainable life mm-hmm. as opposed to something that's just going to fix something quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that's, that's the culture we live in the overnight thing. So, you know, there's a market for it because people want the overnight thing and then that, there's nothing we can say that's going to convince them that they shouldn't do it. And I think they should just do it and have the experience and, uh, and keep having that experience until they realize, well, I need to do something a little bit more sustainable. And then they'll find it then. And it took me 30 years to find it. You know, it takes other people not as long as that. If someone mentioned to me when I was in my early 20s, you know, you should start meditating every day. It's the best thing. I would have probably laughed them out of the room. I wasn't in that space to, to see meditation as something that would be a value, valuable to my life. Which is funny because I teach kids and I teach adults. The difference is kids are able to learn the technique so much faster than adults because they don't come into the room with all these preconceived ideas about their mind and what they can't do. And it's every, all the adults do that. <laughs> it's like they've been talking to their therapist and you know, they have all these stories. They have all this narrative. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. That's <laughs> <laughs> very funny. And uh, yeah, until they reach a certain age and then they're just kind of open again. But usually like between 30 and 50 something, they have, they're like racked in the story yeah. about what they can and can't do. And, um, but the kids get it right away because they're just so, they're just so like open and available to whatever. But the problem with kids is that kids haven't had enough life experience to appreciate having that ability to go into this state. And the adults do appreciate that. So by the time they get through the, their story and they get to the experience, they just love it. They can't get enough of it because it's finally something that not only allows them to have an experience in real time, but also it translates into better sleep, like right away almost. It translate into, translates into better relationships, more clarity, a stronger sense of intuition and those kinds of things. So, so it's just interesting to, to witness that as a teacher. Yeah. So do you find that it's like coming to you as a teacher is, the students that are coming to you as a teacher are like when people go to the doctor when they, they're sick? Mm-hmm. It's like, do you find that people come to you because they're in a place where they feel that they are ready or they need something? Mm, that's a good question. I would say less and less. I think just because meditation is hitting critical mass and now people are starting to, to see it as more of a preventative type of a thing. But that's, again, that's why it's kind of labeled as this wealthy, you know, privileged uh, practice is because that's usually the first population of people to adopt those kinds of preventative practices, Mm. you know, going to the organic section and the fancy grocery store and buying camel's milk and, you know, um, (laughs) you know, all of these kinds of things that regular people don't really see yeah. A, a need for because they've read about it or they know some functional medicine doctor who's told them they should only drink this or eat that. And uh, <clears throat> that's just how it is. You know, and privileged people can do that because they're privileged. They have the resources. They have the time usually on their hands. They have access to 
people who are kind of on the front lines of you know researching and and uh, these kinds of practices and techniques and 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 then it kind of trickles down from there so it's getting to a point now where you have regular people who are also starting to understand the value of it and they're not waiting until something bad happens to start the, the practice but you know there still is that and that's again whatever it takes I'm just happy that people are in the room and they're practicing it so yeah what's your favorite thing about teaching seeing people discover the happiness within like there's a point I teach over five days and there's a point on day in the middle of the third day where you see the turn they go from feeling insecure in the beginning and then they start to become very curious and then there's a turn that happens where they have the experience directly and it's such a new unique thing to them that they just they're just blown away and then they don't want it to end after that and that's that's consistent across the board, you know, from my experiences and everyone I've been teaching over the last uh, yeah, almost 12 years, where it doesn't matter, you know, again, what their background is or where they're from, as long as they're there and they're following the instructions and they have some curiosity and they're going to have the experience. So just seeing that over and over and over it just you know reminds you that what you're doing is valuable for people that you're actually what you're selling is you're 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 able to make good on that on that uh, guarantee because there's so much bullshit out there too you know and I'm I'm a huge skeptic I've always been (laughs) (laughs) and you hear some of these claims with some of these you know practices and it's just I just cringe sometimes just thinking I don't ever talk badly about any specific practitioner mm-hmm. or approach, but you know, everybody's basically saying, you know, do this and you'll release stress or you'll you'll be enlightened or whatever, have bliss. And we have to remember meditation is a very generic term. And there are a lot of people mean a lot of different things when they say this is a practice or this is the, this is how you meditate. And so it's just good to understand that all, that all meditation is the same, you know. And I think that ultimately, if you're consistent enough and diligent enough in your approach, it'll lead you to the same place. But it may require that you adopt a different lifestyle in order to have success in that particular approach. And, uh, and that lifestyle may not be conducive to your, your just inherent nature. Mm. You know? And I tell people all the time, because they ask me, should I do this, should I do that? I say, look around the room. Look at the people who are most enthusiastic about that particular approach. If they look like you, if they're dressed like you, if they eat the things that you eat, then that's probably going to be good for you. Otherwise, that's where it's going to go, in that direction. So if they're all sitting around with shaved heads on and robes, then at some point, you're going to shave your hair off and start wearing a robe. So if you're cool with that, then yeah, go for it. 
Otherwise, it's probably not going to feel natural for you right. enough for you to be right. consistent enough for you to get the value out of it that they, those people have gotten out of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is such a huge thing uh, for me just in my own practice and, and in my life and, and just the reason why I started this podcast is to really speak to this process of uh, having consistency and, and a ritual or being disciplined, whatever lexicon you want to use to, uh, you know, describe those faculties, use it. But I think that part of that is to just be able to do something. It's like a raindrop didn't cause a flood, mm. right? It's, so it's like something over time. Yeah. Is, is so key for our own happiness, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we all do it. We all wait until we have to do it. <laughs> yeah. For certain things, you know? Yeah. It could be diet, could be exercise, could be something. Yeah, I feel, and, you know, with the way that things are, as, as quickly as they go now, I feel like it is easier for us to go look for the quick fixes. And, and I always, I think it's great that you, you're calling out the claims that are out there for people. It's like, here are your five keys to creating the best sleep of your life or um, to achieve enlightenment. Here's the set. What I saw this not that long ago and I screenshotted it. It's like the seven keys to reaching Samadhi. And it's like, what? <laughs> really? Do we have... Really? Right now? And the mm -hmm. seven keys. Um, so with all the travels you've traveled all over the world, you've researched this, this has been mm -hmm. a big part of this, your life. Um, how does, how do we, I don't even want to say like, how do we compare to other parts of the country? Because you've spoken about that at mm -hmm. length. In fact, I think I heard an interview that you did where you talk about that in particular. Um, I guess maybe how, how do you see us in, in the Western Hemisphere just creating a better understanding and better connection to ourselves and to our community? I think that we have to become more analog as a, as a culture. And I think it's probably going to go in that direction. I think we're going to have to go through our AI phase first, the virtual reality phase first, and uh, have all those simulated experiences. And, you know, in my mind, I imagine we're going to, like in 20 years, we'll all be just sitting in rooms with headsets on, like one person will be under, you know, going through the marina trench in the Pacific Ocean, someone else will be climbing Mount Everest, someone else will be in a cave learning meditation with some ancient master, someone else will be having sex with whoever the hottest movie star is at the time, <laughs> we'll all be having these different simulated experiences based on, there will be no more television, there will just be simulations of different experiences. Or you'll be in the, the sitcom Friends, you'll be one of the friends in the sitcom uh, going through that acting. <laughs> and you wrote the script so you could do whatever you want to do right. with any of the characters. Um, but, you know, we're going to be sitting here in these bodies that are just basically rotting because they're not really moving as much as they need to. They're not being fed properly. 
there'd be other variations of like Soylent and things like that. So we got to go through that phase. And then after that, we'll start to see, look, guys, this is not sustainable. We can't keep doing this. Um, we got to start to like have real, real life experiences. And, and then we'll start connecting more as a culture. I see you have the book Blue Zones behind you. I think we have to create more of that, that kind of thing. And, you know, I think that's going to be the next wave of gentrification. I'm not a futurist. This is just, you know, I'm off like, the top wow, of my head. Not only am I freaked the fuck out right <laughs> now, but, like, you're out. I could totally see it. You're totally right. Continue. Yeah, I think uh, we're going to end up creating the hipsters and the, the, new, the, the next wave of hipsters are going to end up creating more Blue Zones within urban areas. Um, where you can get slow food and you can meet up in the town square-like area and people are going to be living with families on communes type of a thing. And uh, yeah, and just trying to just, you know, be more tribal. I think we're moving towards mm -hmm. being more tribal in nature. Um, and... And I think meditate. one of the things I was going to say earlier about meditation, I think it's, even though it's not going to be a cure-all, it's not a silver bullet, it is a key habit, meaning it makes it a lot easier to work out, to eat better, to surround ourselves with loving people if we're not feeling stressed, mm -hmm. right? It's those other things, those other addictive behaviors are addictive because the stress is just unchecked inside of the body. And the stress is what's calling the shots. The stress dictates how well we sleep at night, how well we communicate with our partner or children, how well we do our job at, you know, during the day, and, uh, and to what extent we are craving other sugar and fast foods and carbohydrates. So I think once we start to understand that this stuff needs to be released more and more and more, then it's going to allow us to kind of, I think, come together a lot more and see what's really important as a culture. And I think we, I do, I, I am, I am an optimist, I'm a natural optimist. I do think that we, we will do that, but I think it's gonna get, it's gonna have to get a little bit worse or a lot worse before it starts getting better. Kind of like what you were saying earlier about us getting to the rock bottom. It's yeah. like those people that are like yeah. that. It's like, just let them get. Yeah, so that's yeah, yeah. kind of where we're at as a society. Well, we're going in that direction in for that sure. Direction. It's a very slippery slope. <laughs> I uh, just want to say, you know, for the listener, they can't see your. Uh, Lindsay has the best facial expressions. Like, she's so animated. It's awesome. It's awesome talking to you. I her. also grew up Catholic, so I just made the sign of the cross yeah. because we're all just gonna. Because we're just sitting on a couch across from each other talking, and she's like, she's like the most animated person you ever talked to. It's amazing. <laughs> um, so I want to be respectful of your time and I feel like I've asked you only one of the questions that I had <laughs> and it's already been as long as I have okay so um, I have a couple of questions before we, sure, we yeah. wrap um, the, the other question I wanted to ask you is um, how, how does intuition play a role in our meditation practice Intuition is something that is, um, that is, it's there all the time. And, you know, we refer to it as a still small voice in some religious circles. 
And therefore, because it's still and because it's small, you have to become very, very still in order to be able to hear what it's saying. So that's why people say prayer is you talking to God, meditation is God talking to you. What it really means is meditation allows you to tap into the still, small voice. What's great about meditation is that over time, with consistency, the still, small voice can actually turn up into a loud, annoying voice. And by that, I mean it becomes a voice that you can no longer ignore, and you can hear it above the noise of living everyday life. So you have access to your intuition without having to sit down and get quiet. You don't have to, quote-unquote, meditate on it anymore. The thing you were going to meditate on is just right there with you, right at the surface of your awareness while you're driving, while you're in Trader Joe's, while you're at exercising, you know, doing whatever you got to do. And the best part about it, it's unambiguous. You don't have to decipher it. You don't have to run down to the psychic or the tarot card reader or call your best friend and ask everybody and their mother what do they think about it so they can vet your own intuition, which is what a lot of people end up having to do. And, um, and meanwhile, those people are just giving you their own interpretations based on their own stressed filter, <laughs> instigating things and yeah. telling you to run and everyone's all fear-based. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and the thing with intuition, here's how you know it's your intuition. It's never telling you what not to do. That's not your intuition. Fear tells you what not to do which is from your gut, intuition, which is from your heart, always points you in a direction that tells you, you know, move here, go out, go there, take the leap of faith, like that. And, uh, and it's scary because your intuition is going to almost always point you in the direction of the unknown. The scariest place to go if you're not used to doing it, if you're not used to going there. So... You were mentioning earlier about you and I working in the wellness industry. You know, the wellness industry hasn't always been this kind of, you know, accepted profession. You know, that's just literally in the last couple of years, people started to actually make uh, a decision to move into this industry and out of being a, an attorney or whatever their, their former job was. But back in the day, Back in the 90s, in the early 2000s, you know, when I first started meditating and becoming a teacher, my family would never introduce me as a meditation teacher. And I would tell people I was a meditation teacher, and they just, their eyes would just gloss over. They didn't know what, what the hell I was talking about. And um, I used to be a model. My family would introduce me as a model for like the first eight years I was a meditation teacher, even though I had modeled for like 10 years because I was a yoga teacher before that. But there was nothing, I'm from Alabama, and there's nothing that people can relate to when they hear that. You're a meditation teacher. What is that? Are you with Osho or somebody? You're one of those people? You know, did you see the documentary? Yeah, you yeah. know I did. So that's, I think that is how our culture has looked upon people in this industry for mm -hmm. a long time. Yeah. Until really, really recently. And now people can actually be proud of, you know working as a yoga teacher or meditation teacher or life coach or some other kind of Reiki practitioner. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I forgot what, I was, what point I was making. But. 
<laughs> you no, that's because of just sort of the acceptance of our overall industry at this point and how it's like now it's a little bit more accepted but back in the day it wasn't mm -hmm. it was it was kind of like a wait what i mean my grandma still doesn't first of all my grandma still she doesn't speak english so it's like she still doesn't really know what i do for a living i've been doing it for like 15 years mm -hmm. and she's just like oh no sé there's no, there's no yeah, Spanish word like, for yoga. Yeah, no, she's just like, she does something. She travels a lot. And I'm like, okay, grandma, whatever. Uh, no, it's funny, but it's, it's really sweet. Um, what does freedom mean? Freedom means having the, speaking of intuition, having the access to your intuitive voice so much that you don't have to become paralyzed when making choices. When you know what the right choice is to make, you can just make the choice. You can move in the un into the unknown, and even though it's scary, it, you still know that it's a safer place to be than whatever your current, the status quo, whatever the status quo mm -hmm. is. That's ultimate freedom, not being afraid of the unknown. Mm. Are there any words of wisdom or like an affirmation that you've said to yourself for, since you were a kid or, or something mm -hmm. you live by, yeah? So something that I have always kind of felt, but I didn't have language for until I met my teacher um, back in the early 2000s. He would say this, this phrase, nature's rejection is nature's protection. And everything made sense after that. You know, because mm -hmm. we obviously, if you live on planet Earth, you're going to experience some level of rejection for whatever it is that you are trying to do. And we can spend so much time on trying to figure out why and what does it all mean and, you know, go into the analytical mind, which basically plucks us right out of the present moment and right back into the past, or we start speculating about the future and the ramifications. And you just got to realize that you're always on time. You're always on your path. You're always living your purpose. The only difference is you may not think you are, but you are. And when you look back and you see all the steps and you do the math, you'll see that you were there the entire time. And all the different things that you were rejected from were actually navigating you to exactly where you needed to be. So, if you ever have any moments of, you know, joy in your life, then you have to acknowledge all the, all the bad and the weird stuff that preceded it because it helped you get to the moment of joy and, and, and it will continue. So, yeah, I would say that. And, and that, what that does is it, it, speaking of freedom, it frees you up to be available to whatever's happening right now because there's usually more than one opportunity in any moment for us, but if we're caught in the past and always trying to like figure out why something didn't happen, then we're not, we're not going to be as available to the opportunities in the present. And those present moment opportunities are going to create something that's even more amazing than what we imagine for ourselves. That's been my experience. I never imagined I would be teaching meditation or sitting here talking about it. You know, that wasn't the plan. That wasn't the five-year, 10-year, 20-year plan. Never was the plan. It didn't happen until 
I walked into the room and met my teacher for the first time. And then I knew within about 10 minutes that I wanted, I was destined to be a meditation teacher. I didn't know how it was going to happen because again, at the time there was no track to becoming a meditation teacher. I didn't even know people did what he did, but I just knew, I had the feeling that this was, I was home and this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, uh, and so I tell people, you know, you always want to leave room for inspiration because you just never know. You, it's fine. Have your plans and all that. But just have a little flexibility within the plan in case that inspiration hits and wants to take you into an unknown track that feels amazing. But you, you, you don't want to make, you don't want to be too scared to try it out. And by trying it out, I mean fully committing to it. Yeah. <laughs> not just dip your toe in because that's not trying it out. Yes, yeah. that's, that's that's a reluctant um, flirting with with <laughs> an idea, but it's not fully jumping into the deep end of of the experience, and that's what you really need to do in order to give it the proper go. Yeah, no, I I love that reluctant flirting. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Um, how do you know that you found the right teacher? Because I was safe, I felt safe. I didn't feel like I had to second guess everything I was learning. And, uh, and, and it's not about knowledge, it's about the connection. So I, you know, there are people that I've met, I could tell they're repelled by me for whatever reason. And I tell, I remind them, I remind everyone, I'm not your teacher. You know, if you're if energetically you feel repelled by me for whatever reason, I'm not your teacher. When you teacher, you'll know because you'll feel drawn to that person. They won't say something that will make you feel like feel you know repelled or rejected. Mm. And uh, and that's as it should be. I don't need to be everybody's teacher. And um, and. And everybody doesn't love my teacher when I send people to my teacher. He still teaches. People come back and go, the guy's weird, you know? Some, some people do. Some people love him more than me. And so it's funny because I've seen that so much over the years, and it's kind of, it's been just more and more obvious that everybody is not meant to study with everyone. Mm. So find someone who you feel drawn towards and uh, like naturally charmed and inspired by, and that's your teacher for that time that doesn't mean they're going to be your teacher forever you'll eventually graduate and then some and then you make meet me again and say oh my god light has all the answers and then it's time for us to work together like that yeah oh, i love that thank you for sharing that uh i could obviously keep you here forever an afternoon i'll keep making you oolong tea so i can keep you here <laughs> i'm um, happy to answer any more questions if you have them i well you know i i created uh, this podcast as as a forum, and so uh, I'll ask you the last final questions. Mm-hmm. But I created this uh, out of this idea that we, you know, we're all in this community together. Um, the universe works for us and not against us, mm-hmm. and uh, there is a force that's holding us and this whole planet together. And um, you know, whatever higher power source, baby Krishna, baby Buddha, Mm -hmm. baby Jesus, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, uh, you are radically loved. 
And so this is us sort of honoring that, that same vibration. Mm -hmm. um, so there's two questions for you. The first one is, how do you feel that radical love? And the second question is, what do you radically love? I feel the love from the universal intelligence when I'm just, when I, when I am amazed by the, the, um, the play and display of my life and of nature in, in very regular ways, very normal ways, such as, you know, I was in, a, I was in New York not that long ago, and I was renting one of the city bikes, one of the, yeah. you know, yeah. Ride share things. Yeah, the ride share things. And I did a big trip from Manhattan over to Brooklyn with a friend of mine. And, and then we were going to go to the Brooklyn Museum to go see the David, the, the, the Andy, no, the uh, David Bowie exhibit. And <clears throat> so, you know, there, there was a Saturday, so it was like Six Flags out in oh. Prospect Park. And, yeah. And so everybody was going there. And we went to, we took our bikes to the closest docking station to the park and all the bikes, there were, it was full of bikes, so there was no place to dock it. So, you know, it's a bit of a bummer because now it means we have to ride further away and I'm not familiar with the area. So we rode further away and we docked our bikes maybe two or three blocks away and then we started walking back. And as we were walking back, this person rode right in front of me on his bike and I was like, hey, is that my friend? Dar from when I used to live in New York and I stopped and we had one of those you know what are you doing here conversations <laughs> and we'd spent some time catching up and he's a photographer now so he like took us over to the park and he did these portraits and it was a really nice ex experience and I thought you know if we hadn't had to go in the opposite direction to lock our bikes up we probably would have missed that intersection with my friend and those kinds of things, you know, they happen to all of us all the time. And I think the, the fun of it is, is decreasing the lag time in between these, the, the apparent offense happening and you recognizing that you're actually, you know, going to the re nature's rejection and nature's protection. You're, you're going to the headspace of, look, this is happening this is happening for, for my highest good, actually. Because it's happening, and I'm having to do this, I don't have a choice, then it's something that's positive. And I don't know what's gonna happen as a result of it, but I know that if I'm staying relaxed and trusting in life, then I'm gonna be open and available to all the magic that happens as a result of it. And so those kinds of instances, when they happen, it just reminds me, yes, I knew it. I knew it. I knew something amazing was going to happen. And it's not that, you know, a million dollars started raining down, but just that interaction was a, was a very beautiful interaction, you know, and it was captured for, for uh, eternity in a very special way. And both me and my friend, we were commenting about how wonderful it was, you know, and and those things continue happening. So when you're when you are in when you're open and available enough to that, you pay attention more and you see it happening more and more and more. Because again, this none of this is like unique to me. It's just I get to 
I guess because I've been sort of meditating a long time and I'm not, I don't get easily plugged in and triggered and angry about things, then I, I, I can see it a lot more, I think, than a lot of people are able to see it. But it's not to say that it's, it doesn't happen for everybody. It, it, happens, it does happen for everybody. Another quick example, um, and I wrote about this in my first book, The Inner Gym. Uh, a friend of mine who's a meditator, daily meditator, he told me a story of when he was on a connecting flight in, um, in Chicago's O'Hare Airport, busiest airport in the world. And he had been on a string of canceled flights. So he's stuck in this terminal. Bad food, you know, the whole bit. People upset, angry. And he said, he did a little meditation. He's sitting down, just people watching, right? He, doesn't, he lives in L.A., so doesn't know anybody in Chicago. And then he sees this person walking down the corridor of the terminal, and he recognizes the guy, and he goes, oh, my God, that's, that's the surgeon that operated on his deceased wife. She had cancer, and this was the guy that was ahead of the team that operated and tried to save her life. And it was such a traumatic event for him at the time, because it was maybe four or five years before that, he didn't ever have a chance to, to have closure with those people who had been operating. And the surgeon was also on a canceled flight. So they ended up connecting, and they had a tea, and, and having that conversation, and you're just talking. And he said, if I wasn't in that right headspace, because I was, if I was angry that all my flights were getting canceled, then I probably would have missed that opportunity, you know? And, uh, and it's just, those amazing things are happening all the time. They're happening all the time. And we're just, we're not, if, we're, if we're not available to it, then we're just missing so much. We're missing so much beauty and so much amazement. And I think, you know, that's why we get locked into this idea that I have to go on vacation or I have to be in a museum or I have to be in a botanical garden to see beauty. But beauty's everywhere. It's all around us. And uh, if, we're, if we're open and available to it. So, so I think that's, that's, that's how I have confirmation and that, that there is this kind of higher intelligence that's always there and supporting and, uh, and I have to give my, my daily practice the, all the credit for, for allowing me to be available to it. I forgot your second question. Was, did I answer both questions? Mm, well, the, the next part of the question was what do you radically love and I think... Oh yeah, I, think you I just and it, it makes you radically love your regular life. Yeah, that's it. And that's what it's about, right? Yeah. Just loving being in line at the grocery store and loving being in your car and traffic and loving all of it. Because when we don't love where we are, it's usually because we have this idea that happiness resides on the at the destination. Mm, yeah. And that's not a, that's that's a that's an illusion, right? What they've been saying in in the ancient wisdom traditions across the board is happiness is where you are. You're you're as happy as you're able to be right here, right now. And if you're miserable right now, then you're going to be miserable when you get to the destination. There may be a wave of joy because you know something went your way for five minutes, but eventually you'll settle back to your baseline of misery. And so, you know, the few things that can create an internal blue zone of happiness, things like gratitude, living in community, 
or being uh, connected with your family and friends, uh, dancing, you know, wearing bright colors, meditating, drinking lots of water, eating fresh food. So it's not just meditation, but again, meditation is a key habit that allows you to do all these other things a lot easier. Yeah, I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been meditating since you read the book in a different way at all? Uh, I mean, aside from it... Or do you already have your own practice? I'd already had my practice, but what it did do is it, it gave me a vernacular to be able to explain it in mm. simpler terms. Beautiful. Which is huge for somebody that is leading teacher trainings mm -hmm. and workshops and things. Like, I, I really found that it was not as complex as it was, like, you know, making it, mm -hmm. making it out to seem. I do... I have a teacher that I, I practice with, mm -hmm. um... Uh, Yoga Rupa Rod Stryker, who's a hmm. Tracy Stanley, I think a sure. mutual friend of ours, who's also been on this podcast. Um, same teacher, and so, and to me, it's like when uh, I I found you, and I started to kind of research you, and then I read your book, and you know, I watched your your videos, and I'm like, oh, I really, I felt an instant, uh, I could connect with what you were saying because it was totally relatable and easy and uh you accomplished exactly what you wanted is to demystify mm -hmm. some some of the things that maybe they could get a little bit esoteric mm -hmm. uh and and I really liked it I like the simple because for me it was you know I've been in this uh world for for a long time and even though for me it I'm able to have a consistent practice. Yeah. There are those moments where I'm like, I just don't want to go into this whole, you know, Kriya meditation right now. Like, yeah. I just want to be able to sit. I just need to just be for a moment. I just need to breathe. Yeah. I need to focus on a big rock mm -hmm. or something. You know what I mean? Like, just yeah. like keep it simple. So, yeah. Yeah, I I really uh, I appreciate it, and I'm I'm really grateful. I mean, we didn't even get to go into a lot of the stuff that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, so I guess that just means you're gonna have to come over again <laughs> and do this again, or I'll come to you, or whatever. Um, but I do want to um, to thank you for uh, creating something that's so accessible and uh, so relatable and and so. Uh, valuable for everyone not just people that have the luxury of being in this space but for everybody so thank you for well doing i have to that. give my honestly i have to give my teachers and my students all the credit because i had really good teachers who not only taught me the technique but also showed me how important it is to be relatable and because i got to experience that firsthand as a student and I know I I, re, I saw how much I got out of it, and just hearing stories and having humor along with the teaching and not being everything wasn't serious. And I just thought I just saw how effective it was, and I and I wanted to adopt that same approach with my own teaching, and then getting the feedback from my students, seeing what they connected to, because eventually, you know. No matter how amazing or profound your teacher is, you have to find your own voice if you truly want to be an effective teacher yourself. Yeah. And we all know this from yoga, you know. I remember teaching yoga. I, I, told, I told a friend of mine, 
uh, who's also a yoga teacher, I said, it's going to take you like four or five years to find your own voice. Otherwise, before that, you're just going to be parroting your teacher, you know, for the most part. And then I ran into him um, at, a, at a fancy organic grocery store <laughs> <laughs> not that long ago. And he, now he's been teaching for probably six or seven years. And he said, you know what? I always think about that conversation we had when I was a new teacher and you told me it's going to take five years to find my voice and how true that is to my experience. And the same thing happened with my meditation teaching. It took me a good six or seven years to find my own voice. And, um, and I'm, still, I'm still in that process. I don't think you'll ever get out of that process because even some of the things we've talked about, I can hear my teacher coming through. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I, I you know I could hear my teacher coming through in some of these answers, and uh, and it's I don't think it ever really ends. I think that's the fun part about teaching, and I think that's why you know people ask me, you've been teaching the same course for so long. Do you ever get bored? And I was like, no, because I'm I can feel the evolution of of my teaching as it's happening in real time, and that's that's so fascinating to me to hear these things come out. And I'm still t telling stories that I've never told before from my own experience because I wasn't able to fully relate it to what I'm teaching until I was able to live into those connections, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's just, fa I think teaching is the most fascinating thing that we can do. That, that, that um, um, axiom, the teacher is the most interested person in the room is so true. Do you ever get uh, burnt out on it? No, I don't really allow myself to get burnt out on it. I, I, I'm really good about managing my boundaries um, because I just know how important it is. I know when I was teaching yoga, it got to the point where I wasn't even doing yoga anymore mm -hmm. because I was teaching all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know what that's like, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and meditation is a little different in the sense that uh, I never miss, I mean, it's, it's a rare thing for me to miss meditation just because I enjoy it so much, you know? Yeah. And, and in the pra my practice is still evolving as well. And, uh, you know, I, I, have, I keep humoring myself by saying I'm going to experiment with what it's like to not meditate for 30 days. But the funny thing about it is I don't have the discipline. <laughs> I need discipline to not meditate. <laughs> Otherwise, it's like, why would you do that? It's right? ridiculous. It's like saying I'm not going to sleep for 30 minutes. Right? Why would you why do would that? You do that? Right. I, don't even, I don't even know what the point of that would be. Mm. That would just be like a torturous experiment. Well, I On think it would be note, a good article. It would be just research. Oh, you know, yeah. like What is it like to not meditate after you've been meditating for you know, 20 years? Yeah, but it's almost like what's going to happen to you if you have Twinkies every day for 30 days? Like, why would you do that? I don't know. That's my opinion. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But why I'm, do we do I've anything? been toying with the concept. So huh, interesting. Well, if you do, you'll have to let me know because I'm going to track. I want to see what happens. <laughs> I want to see what happens when you don't. I know what it's like when you don't, but yeah. I'm like, I don't, I don't like it. So, all I right, just I'm, think it's funny that I need discipline to not meditate. To not meditate. Yeah. That's the takeaway. And I need an alarm, because if I don't have an alarm, I won't come out of the meditation. And I have too much stuff to do. <laughs> I've actually missed appointments because I was meditating. It's very embarrassing when that, because it's not, it's not, you know, widely spread enough 
for that to be a legitimate excuse. Yeah, I was meditating. <laughs> it's such an L.A. thing yeah. to say. I'm sorry I'm late. I was meditating. That's, uh, that's amazing. It's like you really didn't respect our time. Yeah, <laughs> at all. <laughs> at all. That's awesome, though. I, like, I, w- I want that to be my excuse one day. It's like, hey, guys, sorry I'm late. I was meditating. It's like, can somebody really be mad at you? Right. Yeah. I don't know. I guess they could. People but who then, don't meditate. Though. People who don't meditate. That's right. Um, okay, so where can people go to find more information or where can they connect with you? You can find me pretty easily on social media online. Um, I'm at Light Watkins on Instagram, Twitter, although I don't really, I haven't figured out how to use Twitter properly yet. Um, LightWatkins.com. And I also want to just give a shout out to the Shine movement, which is, have you been to the Shine before? No, I haven't, but it's, I know it's, it's something you're involved with. Yeah, it's a pop-up variety show with inspirational content. It includes meditation, live music, TED Talk, and a bunch of other stuff. Comedic, uh, comedy, stand-up comedy, uh, all kinds of really interesting performances. We had a Bollywood dance, dance-off in the last one. We had beatboxers take us through a beatboxing exercise. Like 200 people, it happens in LA, New York, and London, and in Germany, and it's spreading. And it's just, it's been my passion sort of project for almost four years now. It's a nonprofit. We give away $400 to someone randomly in the audience. We tell them to go and use it for good and come back and tell us what they did. So we've heard some amazing stories. And it's basically the opposite of watching the news. If you want to go somewhere and feel inspired and feel like, and have a renewed sense of optimism for humanity and the things that are cap- we're capable of and try to find a shine event. It's a full analog experience. There's no Instagram live, no Facebook live. You have to actually be there to have the experience. And it's alcohol free. So meaningful connections. I love that. Yeah. Thank the you. Theshinemovement.org is where you find that. So we'll put um, Light's website, uh, where to buy his book, books. And um, all his in- his uh, Instagram, Twitter, all his stuff, it'll be on the info section of this podcast. So if you click on the info, you'll see all the links there uh, for the Shine event also. And um, yeah, if, if you're listening to this, if this uh, inspired you or gave you some uh, something new to contemplate, let us know. And um that's it. Thank you for listening. Light, thanks for coming over and having tea. Thanks for having me. This is one of my favorite podcasts. Oh, yay. Do you hear that, everyone? <laughs> so if you listen to his podcast on anywhere else, no, he's not having a good time. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank hey, you. everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I am so excited to continue to do this. Please share this with your friends. Email us, message us on Instagram at Rosie Acosta or on Twitter at Rosie Acosta. Subscribe on iTunes, write a review. We love doing this. So please help us continue to keep this podcast going. Thanks for listening.